know what Comanche means. It means enemies forever. Enemies with who? Everyone. You know what that makes me? An enemy. No. It makes me a Comanche. Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan, and I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is uh, episode 86. So get get, get out of here, you because you 86 someone. I'm taking it off. We're taking us off the air today. Yep, 86. All, all 20 of our listeners, at most, will be roundly okay with it. Yeah, they're just gonna. It's a deep collective 20 person, 40 shoulders raised up in the <laughs> air, going. <"Meh." laughs> well, we might have some one-handed listeners. But they, I'm sure things. they have a shoulder. You never know. I guess that's true, Mario. It is October. Which you, is you've given me October, something to think about. In October, you get most of your arms cut off, right? Anything can happen in October. Yeah. Only in October. Only in October. On that note, we've got ourselves here in Oktoberfest. Another one? Yeah. Oh, boy. It's like we're keeping up the theme. <laughs> we did good. Yeah, we did it two weeks in a row. Yeah. We can't promise what's going to happen next week. No, I suppose. I suppose... It's we October. Have this, we have to just, what, two more? Nobody one more can. Week, one more week. Nobody right? can promise what happens in October. Yeah, only one more week, though. Yeah. We just um, got to find one more Oktoberfest. I know of at least, like, two. Um, <laughs> yes. We'll have to find one more Oktoberfest. <laughs> we just get, like, 30. We'll have to do... We'll, yeah, we'll get, like, a tray of different samples. We'll sample all the Oktoberfests we can on that yeah, last no, day. Exactly. Uh, you brought this one today, though, so maybe you should it's talk about it. It's a Relic Brewing Oktoberfest. They say it's... Out of Brantford on this can, but I think it's just canned in Brantford because Relic's out of Plainville. Mm. I mean, they're probably maybe because it's an Oktoberfest. It's not something that they're going to carry for longer than October or the fall. So maybe they just borrowed something from Birks because Birks is like that mm-hmm. coalition of different breweries. You can hear our coffee brewing maybe in the background there. If you hear a growling, is sound. it? I thought it was a meat grinder. <laughs> yeah. Like it's like what they put the people in, you know. We have one of those. Yeah. Before we feed them to a, mm-hmm. a leaf lady, like we talked about last week. I like week. that leaf lady. Yeah. All right, let's crack these open. We'll pour it down the throat of the leaf lady. And then she'll be like, meow, meow. We're about to get the funnel. Yeah. That, Dink it. Well, oh, that's a regular Oktoberfest. Mm, yep. Less good than last week's. Certainly. Not a lot of complexity to it. Is it a little watered down? No, it's sweet. It's um, not syrupy, but it's... Uh, it's no, just it's got not too much... syrupy. It's thin. It's very thin. Yeah, no, that's why I, I agree with you. I, I can understand what you're saying by watered down. Um, it's just boring. Mm. It tastes kind of like agave syrup. I get a lot of agave notes to mm. that. Yeah, it doesn't taste... Um, I think, feel like this is kind of the conversation we had about the workhorse. Is that it doesn't taste bad... Tastes fine, but it's not doing anything. Do not doing anything special. Well, I think the problem is, is we drink a lot of high ABV beers now, and that like our taste buds have been actually mutilated. no. Because last week's Oktoberfest was really tasty, but that wasn't super high ABV. No, that was a little higher than this. But this is a five point five. I think mm-hmm. uh, East Rock Brewing, which is now open, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
We do like that East Rock Brewing. Yeah. They're surprising. They're on Nickel Street <laughs> in, in New Haven. If you haven't heard of it. United States. We'll put on our Instagram page, we'll put um, a picture of a map that Mario's May- going to draw. Maybe we'll one day get half liters because you get half liter pours there and we'll clink them together and take an Instagram photo of that and then be kicked out. Yep. Yep. Because we, we just stole. We stole the half beer. liters so we yeah. can take the picture. Um, but yeah, no, this is this is okay. Yeah, I'm, I, you know, those four, same 40 people are, or same 20 people are shrugging their 40 shoulders at this Oktoberfest May as well. Or less. Or 39. Yeah. Or 38. You don't know. <laughs> uh, or 37. I think, I think we're getting off track here. Maybe we should just talk about some of the new movies we saw this week. Yep. The first movie I saw, that is David Gordon Green's follow-up to 1978's Halloween, titled Halloween. I have prayed every night. That he would escape. Who the hell did you do that for? So I can kill him. Written by David Gordon Green, uh, Danny McBride, and Jeff Bartley, I believe. Poor third guy. The poor third guy doesn't get any credit. Like, like, Je- yeah, Jeff, Jeff Bradley. Um, this is a direct sequel to the original Halloween, ignoring all the sequels that followed. I'm going to say except for Season of the Witch, even though it does, but I'm going to pretend, because you see the masks in it, that Silver Shamrock's out there. It's going to happen. The Season <laughs> of the Witch is fucking awesome. Season of the Witch is the second best sequel of the entire series. Um, <clears throat> so it completely retcons all the other sequels. This has happened several times already in the Halloween right. series. Um, so when this Michael Myers has only killed five people in total in his life he's been in confinement for 40 years um laurie strode's been destroyed by the circumstances of this is constantly preparing for the day michael myers escapes to the destruction of her relationship with her daughter played by judy greer always the criminally unrated judy greer it's gonna be a long time before you see these puppies as she would say Mm. development oh she's great in that show too (laughs) i love judy greer um and her granddaughter uh, played by newcomer Andy uh, Matichak. Um Eventually, Michael Myers escapes, goes on to a killing spree, leading to the climactic sort of final battle between uh, Laurie and Michael to the box office receipts of $76 million. So by climactic final battle, I mean until two years from now when Jason Bloom gets the second next film in the series made does he have to resurrect michael myers again or is did he leave the window open for him to potentially crawl through it did the fire not destroy him i mean they they do this this ending where you you see michael myers starting to burn um it cuts away they're watching michael myers when it cuts back you suddenly don't see michael myers but the assumption would be that they would have seen this guy walk away um, after the end of the credits, you hear the breathing, which could just be a callback to the big ending of the first film. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, I guess it opens up the window for Michael Myers to escape, but there's, there's various avenues they can take with that. They can do a season of the witch remake. You should do a season of the witch remake. <laughs> uh, I'm conflicted on this film, but initially I was planning on seeing this right before we recorded last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and talking about for the, the last week's episode, uh, I think that would have been a mistake because I left that film 
feeling very conflicted. The original Halloween is a film I absolutely adore. Um, it will show up long, 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 long time from now on my list. Um, a lot of reviews have called this the, the perfect follow-up to the original, and I think that's 100% false. That's the one thing I can certainly say is wrong. Why is it the perfect... What about this makes it the perfect follow-up? What, what they say makes it the perfect follow-up? Yeah, yeah. It's just, just this fact of Michael Myers being removed from the supernatural elements, becoming more of like a force of pure evil. Yeah. Um, a reckoning ball, you know, there's, there's no explanation for what he is. He's just evil, and that's all you can take from it. Mm-hmm. And that's... I agree with. My problem with the sum nation that this is the perfect follow-up is the fact that he's such a force of nature that he has no sense or rhyme or reason to what he's doing um early on in the film he kills like a kid uh i guess i guess you could necessarily say that there is a reason for that because he needs the car um and he's killing he's doing some killings that make sense because they're like in the way of something he needs he needs his mask back he needs to get a knife and then he goes into another woman's house and just stabs her through the neck to try out his knife, I guess. It's a great tracking shot. It does like this long, two minute long tracking shot of the woman look like being called to, to told to look out for Michael Myers. Uh-huh. Um, she looks through her window after you know, Michael Myers has leaned in, looked through the window, saw her talking while her back's turned. She comes up to the window after he's go, starting to go around the house. She's looking out the window, starting to close the, the windows. Then Michael Myers kind of gets into the house, goes up behind her, smashes her head, and jams a knife through her throat. And this movie's insanely violent compared to the original Halloween. Uh-huh. Um, to like the nth. It is easily, with maybe the exception of Rod Zombie's 20, 2009 Halloween 2, the most violent um, Halloween, but it's, there's a lot more of a realisticness to the violence. Uh-huh. Um, like we're going to talk about next week with some of the realism of the violence that it's it's not stylized or not slasher like it's so it's very much feels like if you stab a person this is what's gonna look like and they even uh the 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 new actor that portrayed michael myers i can't remember his name said like he he talked with how you would efficient like talk to people about how you'd actually efficiently kill someone quickly and he kind of took that into the role that's nice yeah it's it's weird um but people call a perfect follow-up and i i disagree with that because for one thing Michael Myers has a a goal in the original. He sees Laurie um, dropping off mail at his old house, and he becomes obsessed with her almost. He follows her around. He goes to her school. He follows Tommy, the kid she's looking after, his school. He follows her home. He drives, follows behind her. He's obsessed with her. Like you know, It's that symbol of evil versus purity in, in, in the most simple terms of, of slasher films. In this film, he's just walking around killing people that happen upon him. He, you know, he walks into that woman's house, stabs her through the throat. He walks to a friend of Lori's granddaughter, just because that happens to be in his way, kills her and her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. He happens upon the granddaughter just by happenstance, kills her friend, follows her around. Eventually, his new psychiatrist is obsessed with him. Um, you know, kind of this anti-Loomis, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Saraton, I believe is the name, um, wants to see why he ticks, wants to hear him speak, because a big part of this is seeing Michael Myers speak, okay. and takes him to Lori, because he thinks Lori, who's been hiding out in this, like, backwoods, takes him to Lori, because he thinks that, you know, if seeing Lori, he'll make him talk. 
so Michael Myers has no fucking interest in Lori in this. It's just he happens upon Lori and he goes after her because she's there. You know, mm-hmm. he's killing people because they're there. And that's not the Michael so Myers. It's not like a revenge on Lori thing. It's no, just kind not of at all. Like it's just a... like everyone thinks that Lori thinks Michael Myers wants is coming after her. Everyone thinks Michael, uh, you know, this doctor thinks Michael Myers is coming after her, but Michael Myers is just walking around killing people. There's, there's no presumption. The only person that Michael Myers purposely goes after are the two podcasters early on because they have his mask and he wants yeah. his mask back. And I think that's kind of a, a betrayal of the pretenses of the, the first one. Now, that would sound like I'm being negative about this, but I, I don't necessarily think I am. And this is where I'm conflicted. I don't think this works as a Halloween film. I think it's a really good slasher movie. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that you remove the pretense of Michael Myers and make this about a guy who's been locked up for 40 years, who committed this atrocious murder on somebody, kind of like this woman survived it, and he goes across as like force of nature, but she's obsessed with him and like people are obsessed with that. That idea works. Mm-hmm. And and what you know, Gordon Green and and Radley and McBride do really well is typically in slasher movies you don't give a shit about your victims. Um the victims are just there for cool kind of deaths. Yeah. And he, they do something where they establish each character's death besides maybe like two characters. Um to give you a reason to kind of like like them. You know, there's there's funny banter between two cops who are murdered about sandwich. Um the woman that gets stabbed through her throat makes them make a really smart decision to start locking up the house, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the women that gets bashed in with a hammer has a baby that Michael Myers kind of like stands over for a while and it's like, you're thinking he's going to kill him, but then walks off. Oh, good. Um, you know, the, the kid that gets killed early on doesn't want to go hunting. He wants to, like, do dance lessons. So they have this, like, funny... He'd rather be going to his dance lessons. And so they do this, like, stuff that's kind of, like, interesting, that, that makes you root for him. And this is one of the most successful slashers, in my mind, of making you fucking hate the villain. Mm. Like, it, that's interesting. it does culminate towards, you know, usually, I, I think a big thing about slashers, especially seeing modern media, where, like, stuff like the Dead Meat YouTube channel are big, that's just showing these slashers kill people, like, all oh, the cool ways that people are dying. And this movie's like, I don't want these people to die. And, like, when they die, you're like, fuck this guy. I mm-hmm. want this guy to die. And then when he does get killed in the end... You're like, good. It's it's a catharsis. Um and so it works in that way. Like it, it the violence I the grisly violence I think works because of the fact that when you see these people die, you don't want them to die, and they're dying in awful ways. They're mm-hmm. getting not really tortured. It's it's really kind of quick stabbings. Um but it does culminate to this woman wanting revenge on him. Because the entire first act, nobody dies for the first like twenty minutes of this movie. And it's just about her life being destroyed by mm-hmm. this. And that's interesting to me. The idea of, and I, I think I talked about this right after I got out of the theater, um, like texted you about it, was the fact of like a horror movie that's not even a horror movie about dealing with a woman, dealing with the aftermath of the post-traumatic stress of surviving this was interesting. Right. And so it's a really unique, nice take on it that doesn't kind of jump into the violence. It, it rests on her. She's the main character. Um, and, you know, it, it, it works in a nice story arc of like this culmination of her fucking killing this guy um so yeah i guess my opinion of it has of a slasher it's it's really exceptional has a sequel to halloween it's not good i mean we're just making this movie again so we can sell tickets right like i mean i've never found halloween uh, i never found the first halloween all that interesting yeah jason bloom right now is basically looking at ways to spend 10 million dollars and make 
$300 million. Or, I mean, he's talking about making a $10 million alien now, which will make fucking gang. I mean, that can make $100 million I mean, and it'll make 10 times. I think the point eight of times Blumhouse r- really is to spend $10 million and make 11. Yeah. But and if he makes, end up making 300, then he's very, he's very, very happy. Because instead of making, it used to be I can make a $4 million movie and make 10. And now it's I can make a $10 million movie and make you know, 15, and as long as he keeps making money, he could just kind of... It's like a more expensive Roger Corman operation. Yeah, but th- I think the thing is, Gordon Green's been wanting to make a, sl- a horror movie for a while. Well, Gordon Green's been wanting to make every kind of movie yeah. that ever existed. Because he was attached while. to Suspiria for a long time been, with Natalie Portman. Yeah. Which would not have been as good as... I assume we're, we're going to probably talk about that soon. I'm actually very excited for yeah, Suspiria, I'm because really the excited. reviews have been awesome. Yeah, they not kind of awesome, remind me of good, Mother. Like but Mother. awesome, like... This is upsetting. Yeah. And not in the same kind of way. And some that... people will say it's amazing. Some people say it's right, awful. Yeah. Um, um, I just, I mean, because I, I listened to a couple of podcasts about Halloween because I'm not going to see it because I don't give a shit. But um, I'm saying, like, they were rooting for Michael. They, like, wanted him to win. And I'm just like, win what? What is he going to win? Like, where is he going to Yes, you don't get that go? at all. I don't get that at all. If he kills um, her, what happens? He just sits down and is like, good. Did it. Well, no. And the idea of this movie says he would just keep... Killing people. Who cares? And <laughs> like, really care about but that's that. that's the thing, and I think that's why this movie works is the fact that they they try like in that sense, um, they try to make you not want to root for him, right? And Gordon Green filmed like, I guess there's supposed to be a bunch of delete. He filmed a bunch of different takes of the deaths of each death because mm-hmm. he was obsessed with like getting that part of it right mm-hmm. in this of of the intensity of it, um, and took a, some real life examples for some of the violence. Like there's an impalement on a fence and he looked at the photo like years ago and like kind of took Terrific. the idea of um, what to do with that. Um, and I think the fact that it is very, like it is realistic in some of his There's one death scene that's nonsense. The person gets his, their head smashed in by just getting it stomped on once. That, that doesn't happen. But um, like, another, like another person gets stabbed in the throat and has this like hanging sort of flesh thing. It's like, oh, that person looks like they actually got stabbed in the throat. Mm. Um, the deaths are uncomfortable in this and they're, they're raw. And I think if people are rooting for Michael Myers after that, they're fucked up. <laughs> well, I think one of the things is that because it's, you know, an old, you know, it's an old property that people have an, an attachment to the idea of Halloween, which is inherently an attachment to the idea of Michael Myers. And they're just kind of happy to have. See, they understand the idea of Michael Myers stomping around, killing people rather than kind of developing new characters to stomp around and see, kill I'm people. all in on what John Carpenter had originally thought and Deborah Hill. Um, the score for this is great, by the way. I mean, I, I listened to the the Shape Returns months ago, the, the first score track, and I didn't like it. This doesn't work on by itself the score, but it Carpenter does knows, the score. Yeah, Carpenter, his son, and his godson did the score, but Carpenter made a score that just works for the scenes. So, mm-hmm. like when you're hearing it in the scenes, you're like, oh, that's fucking awesome. That's but cool. by itself, it doesn't really work. Um, but I was, I'm sold on the original tenement of making a series called Halloween. It starts off with Michael Myers and then it goes to a crazy guy who's a warlock with a bunch of masks. I'm, I'm sold on the idea of all these horror movies taking place on Halloween. I don't fucking need to see Michael Myers for like 17 sequels. Right. You know, it was cool to see this guy in a faceless white mask who's very human 
you know, do this, get killed in the end, and then we move on to the next story. Well, I'd be interested to hear, I mean, because you're more of a horror guy than I am. I'd be interested to hear your take, and maybe not now, maybe, you know, you know, down the road a little bit. But the idea of, um, at some point, we really liked as a culture having our horror movie villains. It, we really liked being able to define them by one thing. So, you know, you had your Michael Myerses, and you had your Jasons, and you had your Freddy Kruegers, and you had your, you know, Hellraisers. Or whatever your pinheads and your right. leather faces. And it was just it was Chucky's. It was I can go all day. A defined thing, and it was you know this guy was the villain. You understood him implicitly after a certain amount of time. Um, why is that better than like making new movies and inventing new villains? Is there something inherently terrifying? Do, did we build? I, I don't want to go too deep on here, but is this kind of one There's of those no, things? I don't think there is any depth to it. Is there one of these things though, where like it's like, um, you know, what did I talk? Which movie was I talking about? This, you know, if there was no God, we would have invented one. Are we kind of like just um, embracing these villains that we perceive instantaneously as archetypes, and then like can't get rid of them? You know what I mean? Or, you know, is there something actually to that? I'm asking you to be an anthropologist and I think a sociologist about this. There's, there's a discussion. I, I, whoa, man. I can't remember if it was her. Um, I'll, I'll look into it. But uh, there's this conversation that, that people are attached to slasher films because of their primalness. Mm. Um, that mostly we see them for their funhouse-style deaths because that's the closest we want to be to death. And... We get a kind of thrill from death because we get that, that sure, adrenaline yeah, yeah. rush. Um, and you don't want any complexity besides that. So you get very simplistic, easy villains um, that's a, killing that's people in various yeah. ways to because you're, you're rooting for those kills. And I'm past that. I, 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 I guess like the slasher genre has always kind of appealed to teens. Um, and I, I think maybe you get to a certain point where like you don't need to see death anymore because like you can – you're – so familiar with death and life are so familiar with like real people doing some of this shit. Um, they need something else out of it. Mm. Um, and, and I guess this kind of succeeds in, in doing that, like in the, in the sense of you'd like to see that, that triumph of good over that evil. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think people with slashers just kind of wanted a very simplistic, Com- comforter blanket were, were the villains of themselves because you see them in each sequel um, killing people in, in new ways and, and you know it being like a village comeuppance of, yeah. of sin that's interesting because you want to have that you want to have that catharsis of violence but you also don't want to identify with the villain in any way whatsoever yeah exactly and that's why so Michael you, Myers wore the white mask that's why you develop Freddy Krueger existed in exactly. your dreams yeah 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 um, and they're so you know, out of place from normal society that you don't actually have to worry about, you know, them. And that's, you know, in, interacting with them on on a normal basis. And that's why we look at Scream less as a part of that slasher genre, more as like a meta commentary on that genre because it is human beings committing it, even though there are in a mask, they're eventually unveiled and they become human. And that's why we can't, we can't just call it the pure slasher. That's why we're not endeared by that's where we don't say we're endeared by the deaths we're in, you know endeared by the story and the comedy and whatnot because we yeah, want yeah, that yeah. separation um but yeah interesting so yeah bad halloween sequel good slasher movie mm. well the movie i saw which i really movie. wanted to see but unfortunately right. the timeline did not work for me i loved 
this director's previous film. Yeah, we'll we'll have to do a deep dive into the into the David Lowry oeuvre one day. Um, but a good I, two hours on Pete's Dragon. Pete's Dragon is deep. Is it's, pretty deep. Pretty, it's pretty, pretty deep deep movie. Good. Um, the old man of the gun. Catch a boat to England, baby, and maybe to Spain. Wherever I have gone, wherever I've been and gone, wherever I have gone, the blues are all the same. Uh, starring Bob Redford. That's what people call him, right? Bobby? Bobby R. Bobby R. Um, it's Forrest Tucker. He is the leader of the Over the Hill Gang, a trio of bank robbers. That includes Tucker and um, Tom Waits playing Waller and Danny Glover playing Teddy Green. Um, um, so all three men are in the late stages of life and they are, when we meet them, they are almost seem like they're trying to establish a kind of nest egg so they can, they can move on with their lives. Um, Tom Waits has, you know, says something very specific to that point. Danny Glover's um, performance seems to embody that desire to not have to scuffle anymore, to not have to rob banks, to not have to take the risks to kind of, um, you know, have to be comfortable. Um, Forrest isn't doesn't seem like he's that guy. They talk a lot about the idea that he just likes to rob banks. Um, and it's what he does, and he's escaped from jail 16 times. And there's a... This is loosely based on a real story, right? Yeah. So um, the uh, it was a New Yorker article written by David Gran, I think in the mid, mid-90s. So this happened... The story takes place in 81. Um, you know, right after um, Reagan takes office. So it's like in, within Reagan's first Middle year... Days. Um, right after he got shot, um, okay. so, um, because uh, one of the characters' daughters like is writing a letter to Ronald Reagan, and everyone's still super happy that Ronald Reagan's got president. shot. Yeah, no, <laughs> that Ronald Reagan's president. Um, the major theme of this movie that the movie puts out there for you is you gotta do what you love. This is exemplified in. Um, Casey Affleck's character, uh, John Hunt, he is a robbery detective who ends up chasing Forrest, um, who, when we meet him, is kind of dissatisfied with his work and has just, you know, kind of lost his passion for investigating robberies. And his, um, you know, wife tells him, you know, you just got to do your job. And he doesn't really want to do his job. And he's kind of mopey about it. Um but then he gets tipped off to, you know, he connects some dots with, with the robberies that Forrest has committed and he gets, you know, impassioned about it. Um, but it's interesting in the sense that he learns from Forrest and some some of the things that Forrest says. Um, that kind of idea that Forrest just likes to rob banks and it's, it's not about um, making a living. He's not doing it to make a living. He's, you know, it's just just living you know he's just living his life it's almost like it's what he was meant to do you do the thing that you were meant to do you do the thing you love and for for Casey Affleck's character that ends up 
being just uh, being a, a husband and being a family man. And it's really, um, it's a really happy movie. And that's one of the things they talk a lot about in the movie is that Robert Redford's character always seems so happy when he's robbing banks. And that's why people are so um, willing to give him their money because he's kind and he seems joyful and he, um, you know, he smiles and he makes small talk with people that he's robbing and, you know, tells them they're doing a good job and um, they call him a gentleman and uh, you get that. You get all that stuff. Forrest at some point meets uh, Sissy Spacek um, when he's trying to evade a robbery and they, you know, she's of his age and she's lost a husband and she's alone in her ranch because her kids are grown up and they've moved out and they have lots of conversations about how things used to be and how things are becoming and whether or not they're happy about life's transitions and... um, they're both happy and not happy, and just, you know it's one of those things. Um, I'm also conflicted about this movie in different ways from the way that you are about Halloween, obviously. So Robert Redford doesn't go around stabbing people in the throat. He does stab Sissy Spacek in the throat, but oh. it's, you know, it's, real twist. Yeah, um, I don't. I this for is... one second I actually believed you. By the way. <laughs> That'd be funny. That's the real twist of this. It's like, how does this get a PG thirteen? He was super happy, and then he was not happy anymore. Well, he was happy. I mean, he's um, so happy. He's just stabbing people in the throat. Huh, huh. Um, it's a very enjoyable. It's a very pleasurable movie. It is shot kind of amazingly by um, Joe Anderson, who has a lot of indie film credits to. His has he name. worked with Larry before? Or no, no, he hasn't. Um, yeah, just from some of the scenes I watched. Of this, oh, um, like just the establishing shots looked it's got great. A, it's got a lot of a lot of great shots. Um, you got a lot of good music. There's a scene where, um, I mean, I love David Lowry. I've you know he's only made four major features. We've I think I've seen all of them. Um, I don't know. Did you see Pete's Dragon? Yeah, I saw Pete's Dragon. So you've seen? Have you seen Anthem Body Saints? Yeah. So you've seen all of them except for this one. Why am I forgetting his first one? Ain't the body well? Ain't the body Saints, Pete's Dragon, Ghost Story, and this. Oh, I thought you were saying there's four before this. No, okay. no. Um, Dave That's the Lowry, sound of Tom's, Tom's hand just slapping across his face. He knows what the fuck he's doing. He makes a good movie. Um, I love watching his movies. There's a scene where um, he takes this Jackson C. Frank song, "Blues Run the Game," which is a song that sounds familiar, but also in the context that you're seeing it. Um, is perfect and is new if it's something that you've heard before. Um, and it's the scene where Forrest gets, is about to get caught and he's at his house in the, you know, um, at his house in the dark and it's a chase scene, um, in the, in the dark, in the kind of fading light. Um, and it ends with Forrest, um, going to Sissy Spacek, Sissy Spacek's character's house, knocking on the door. Um, she doesn't come to the door, so he decides to take a horse. And he, there's like a serape on the horse. So he, Robert Redford throws this serape on and climbs on this horse with his hand bleeding because, you know, he got shot in the chase. Um, and he's got his, his old fancy hat on and, and he's climbing a hill on this horse and this really mournful, great song is playing, like an acoustic, you know, acoustic ballad plucked, um, 
But then the cops have followed him there, and there's this, this long line of cop cars on this dirt road leading up to Sissy Spacek's house, and he just stops on his horse and kind of reconsiders. He's going to try to escape again. You know, I mean, he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna leave it all. But I think when he sees that the cops are coming for this woman that he he loves and he cares for, um, he lets himself get he lets himself get caught. Um, but there's a great fucking shot of just Robert Redford on a horse with cops coming um, as the sun's going down with the song playing. And you're like, fuck, like Robert Redford. You know what I mean? It's like it's like a key. It's like a, a perfect Robert Redford shot. You know what I mean? And especially in the way that they're kind of framing this where it's supposed to be Robert Redford's final movie that he's being in, um, which makes it, and it's the moment when you ask the question hard to yourself, is this a real movie or is this just like a long form advertisement for how Robert Redford is awesome? Well, you were talking about this earlier about how it felt like David Lowry was just making a love letter to Robert Redford. Well, he said he only did the movie because it came with Robert Redford attached to it. Um, which was is interesting because, you know, it essentially means that he wouldn't have made this movie if it didn't come with Robert Redford. Um, which is additionally interesting from the sense that it's a it's an excellent movie. I mean, it's just, it's a wonderful movie. As you movie. expect now from David Lowry. Exactly. I mean, even Eight Men by Saints, which is okay, I think. It's his yeah. most okay movie. It's still just it's interesting. so it's, competent yeah. and so interestingly shot. Um, and there's a great scene, too, when, like, Casey Affleck... <laughs> He's looking for Forrest. He's actively looking for Forrest. And um, it takes this take this scene takes place in Dallas because they're both based out of Dallas. Um, you know, he's he's kind of having this rejuvenated relationship with his wife because now he's kind of understood, you know, I got to do the thing that I love and I love to do, uh, you know, he loves to do his wife, I guess is what I don't want to say, but it's <laughs> what I do want to say. And Robert Redford, he goes... Yeah, when you do... When you, like, it's yeah, a, it's exactly. a common thing in films when you are doing the things you love. It's, it's, some, right, it's, it's a trope that you fine. become revitalized in your I just in didn't want to say those life. words, yeah. Um, you got to <laughs> let the word master say it. Yeah. And it's <laughs> he ends up baritone. at this diner where um, Robert Redford and Sissy Spacek have been kind of meeting up and um, Robert Redford sees him and he knows who he is because he saw him on TV saying that he's looking for him. And then Casey Affleck goes to the bathroom and Casey Affleck doesn't see him. And then Robert Redford also goes into the bathroom. And they have this great scene um, where the ghost comes and is clanking around downstairs. And um, there's a talk, there's a long five minute speech about nihilism. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great scene where um, Casey Affleck obviously knows who he's talking to. Forrest obviously knows who he's talking to. They have a fairly, um, meet good. They have a fairly meaningless conversation about you know looking sharp, and that's you know how to get people to take you seriously. Is, is you know he straightens his tie, um, and then Casey Affleck, Robert Redford leaves. Casey Affleck, you know, tells Forrest, "I do know what I'm doing." And then there's this great moment where Forrest slash Robert Redford leaves and Casey Affleck just kind of, you know, has this big smile on his face and looks amazed at himself that this just happened. Um, and again, it's one of those situations where you I'm not 100% sure this isn't a pseudo fanboy reaction to being 
acting in a scene with Robert Redford, um, which is cool and is fun, but I don't know how seriously to take it as a movie. Um, I tend to be one of those people who it's not enough just to have fun at a movie. Um, but I did have fun. It's a fun movie, but that simultaneously makes it seem kind of disingenuous. But didn't we talk, we've talked about before about, well, at least me, I, I like those saccharine mm. movies. And so this is, this is this an example is. of an saccharine movie and you just yeah. don't, don't appreciate that. I do appreciate, I, I was listening. Like, I, <laughs> I do appreciate it. And like, but the things that I find best about this movie are not the things I don't know. I'm really conflicted about it because there is, I feel like it's a, um, you know how everyone's saying that like, you know, La La Land, you know, was going to be a big Academy movie because it made the Academy feel good. You know what I mean? It's about making movies and it puts movies in a, in like a really special light and people would respond to that. And the same thing that they're talking about now with, um, the artist was a good example. Oh, too. A fucking artist. But yeah. Um, we tried to burn that out of our memory, didn't we? What are we talking? Um, a star is born and how yeah. it puts, you know, the fame industry in this really positive light and people are going to respond well to it. There is no movie this year that puts Hollywood movies in a better light than motherfucking the old man and the gun. There is no more perfect Hollywood scene than... I don't know, man. Bohemian Rhapsody. We haven't seen no, that movie yet. We're, no, we're not even going to talk about that. There is no <laughs> more perfect Hollywood scene... It almost made me cry, and I might even start crying. But like tears of like really of like happiness of yeah. like of Sissy Spacek riding down a hill on a on a horse with this big smile on her face, with this great score in the background, with Robert Redford like smiling at her. You know what I mean? And it's just it's framed perfectly. It's acted perfectly. It looks perfect. It is just perfect. Or Robert Redford kind of he drops off. Sissy Spacek at her house right before he's about to get caught. And he, you know, he lets her get out of the car by herself. She walks into the house. She closes the door. And then Robert Redford, out of nowhere, you know, he's just met Casey Affleck. So he's got to know something is going to happen. And he hasn't kissed or done anything with Sissy Spacek at all in the whole movie. And he gets out of his car and he opens it. She opens the door and he kisses her. And she's just all, she's all flustered. And you just kind of. It's just perfect. It's a perfect Hollywood moment. Um, kind of like a classical Hollywood moment. Not classical, but like a nice but it's a, it's 1960s, a, 1970s, but it's emotion, early 80s. It's emo- exactly, and it's emotional, and it looks like it's from the 70s. You know what I mean? The movie is fuzzy, and the, the color palette is a very kind of 70s motif. It's real granular. Motif. Yeah, and, um, but it's just really, it's really powerful. But then when they're doing the vaguely Wes Anderson style depiction of all the times that um, Forrest has escaped from jail, they've used actually old, some old clips from old Robert Redford movies oh, really? in the thing. And, and But it just confuses you more. Because you're just like, what is, what, what, what is this movie that I'm watching? What's the point of this? I don't do understand. You, do you have an extreme attachment to those, those movies of Redford's or of that time period? No. At all? I, I, no do you not, think I, maybe you would appreciate this movie more if you did i appreciate that i don't think so and i think part of the i understand where they come from i'm not like 
going so deep into the minutia of Robert Redford's whole career so I can pull out certain moments and stuff. But I know enough of Robert Redford to know that when Robert Redford gets caught, when they depict Robert Redford getting caught the most recent time he got caught before he gets caught at the end of the movie, he, you know, he's on a car, you know, he's, it's another car chase. Um, he gets cornered. You know, the cops all stop him. They pull their guns out. Robert Redford gets out of his car. Um, you know, that's Robert Redford's scene. You know what I mean? That's like, and he makes a Robert Redford face. That's when he does the gun thing that you've seen in all the previews. Um, it's perfect. It's cool. It's old school Hollywood. It is, um, you know, a kind of send off, a perfect send off to this icon of Hollywood. No. But I, I think my question, the thing I'm questioning is not the quality of the movie because I think the movie is really, really good. I think my question is, is it more than that? Because if it's not, I've, I'm afraid, I, I worry about it being just kind of like a, a Robert Redford vanity project. Do you think to an extent that it was maybe Lowry? Um, Lowry write this as well? or I didn't fucking down. I think okay. he, I think he did um, a pass on the screenplay though. So um, a lot of Valerie's like previous films have a lot of like seventies influence to him. I mean, look at Pete's Dragon alone. You know, Pete's Dragon mm. based on like that. Um, but you know, ain't them by Saints because it has that like Billy Jack or Butch, even like somewhat of a Butch yep. Cassidy feel to her. Still like that Bonnie and Clyde. Um, that seventies granularity to it. Um, Ghost Story. A lot of parts of Ghost Story kind of remind me of something like Holy Mountain, even though they're dramatically I was literally going to say the same exact very thing. different. Yeah, but it's um, just it's the it's the surrealist, you know, all encompassing. Like, yeah. Do you think, perhaps, and I haven't, like I said, I still haven't seen this yet. And I, I'm really upset that I missed it. That maybe this was Lowry's attempt, in the sense that he's taken a lot of those kind of ideas. Like his films have a very '70s, late '60s, early '70s feel to him. And, you know, he's taking stars of the age. Um, he even Danny Glover is, is an early 80s, like you're looking at some like Witness or whatnot, early 80s star. Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to see if he could do that as well. Maybe. And if that's the case, do you think it works a little better? If it's not just so much a love letter to Robert Redford, but he's using Robert Redford as a vehicle of his love, but not necessarily has his love to Robert Redford, but as a vehicle of his love to films of the age maybe um i think yes i think both probably and i it doesn't change my conflict with this movie doesn't change the fact that i think it's a really good movie um and i enjoyed it a lot i just i i wonder what the i wonder about that question you know what i mean and i'm gonna keep wondering about what was actually supposed to happen here because well, i mean me and you both had a really profound it, like a ghost story has a really profound impact on both of us mm. in terms of like we talked about wanting to do a special episode just like we talked with Columbus about just on something like a ghost story. I mean, yeah. it's not a pivotal film for either of us, but it's a movie that with time could potentially become a pivotal. Absolutely. Film. And um, you think it's because of that, that this being such a saccharine, as you said, um, or as I kind of guided you to say, follow up to something that 
hit you so Maybe, much? Do you think it was also, like your expectations going into know. it? It's, it could be because this is one of the movies that I really wanted to see, and I, I don't want to like labor too long on 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 this. Um, but it's one of those uh, things where it. You know, so they're talking the whole time. You got to do what you love. He loves to rob banks. He ends the movie ends for like the fifth time. I, I don't love the ending of this movie, um, with you know Forrest going to rob some more banks. Um, he just got out of jail. He's living with Sissy Spacek. It seems like everything is going okay, um, but like he goes to the movies and he sees like an armored car drive past him afterwards, and he like stares it down, and then he hears like the the um, you know the blast of a of a train, um, like in the distance, like uh, like a horn, and he kind of you know has this great Robert Redford look on his face, and he's an old man. And he's, you know, he's obviously referencing like you know a different time. He's he's thinking about a different time in his life, um, and he goes then he goes but he goes back to robbing banks because it's the thing he loves to do, and he's perfectly happy about it. Um, and the movie even says like he robbed four banks that day, and he got caught, and he was smiling like the whole time. Um, but doesn't that seem like the very like old school last Robert Redford movie thing? Like you yeah. got to do the thing. Like you know he's so old. I mean, you know he's not a hundred, but he's old. He's been making movies forever. He's like been an icon of not just Hollywood but filmmaking in general. With you know his you know founding of the Sundance Film Festival and like all this other stuff. He hasn't ruined his career like other actors have. Right, exactly. Clint Eastwood. <clears throat> Clint Eastwood, yeah. <laughs> Um, which I'm because the movie's so good I'm fine with it in a way I just wish I want it to be I hope it's more I want it to be more I hope after I think about it and you know see it again when it hits um, you know you know Amazon in three months before Oscar season comes out um, yeah so that's one reason I didn't like that I get more. I know I'm going to be able to see that because yeah. I could see this being a movie that I because I respond well to the saccharin kind of movies. I can see this being a movie that oh, this I is, fall in love with. It's a very moving, happy, excellently made movie. Um, I just wish I understood it better. I wish I understood its motives better. That's fair. I think that makes sense. All right. You'll get my opinions on it in our end of year discussion. There you go. Um, yeah, this is going to be a movie that's, that ends up on some of, my, uh, some of the lists we make at the end of the year. Yeah. Um, for sure. Um, so we will be right back with our number 86s. Yeah. Get out of here. Oh, well, no. Come back. Come come back. <laughs> come right back. Don't get out of here. Get out of here to, to get a drink to settle in for 86s. Yeah. There you go. Good one. All right. We're back. My number 86 is The Revenant. And this is a movie I won't be saying too much about right now because this is the second instance where a movie on Tom's list appears higher on my list. Apparently, yeah. I like movies of that movies that Tom usually likes more than Tom likes them. Yeah, but I feel like it ha- later in our lists, yeah, I have movies switch. higher up than you have them. Yeah. So I don't know. What's that say about us? Nothing. I don't think. I, I think it's. I think it's really <laughs> just kind of happenstance. Yeah. Um, so this movie is directed by um, Alejandro G. Inaritu. Um It is stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hardy and Dom Hall Gleason as the main characters and a bear. Um, 
That bear. There is... He needs to get work. More work. He's a machine What's bear. What's his so. name? I thought they named him. I thought he had a name. I thought it was like Bart the Bear or something. No, Bart the Bear was a famous bear from... Oh, he was from um, oh, The yeah. Edge. Yeah, yeah. Right. Another, another The Edge reference. Talk, no, no more of this. <laughs> no more talking about The Edge. Um, uh, so this movie's on my list for a couple of reasons. We're still in my, um, you know, my visceral film experience category. Um... You and me saw this together with our buddy JP. We're holding hands. We were, <laughs> we were holding hands. Um, Tom coddled me while I wept during some death scenes. It was, it was a great moment. I definitely wouldn't have coddled you. I would have said, pull it together, Mario. Oh, I Get took your that, fucking shit together. I took that as coddling. <laughs> I have a weird definition I of coddling. I didn't hit you, so it's coddling. Um, Although that would have been actual like sympathy if you had hit me. So. Yeah. We have a weird relationship, people. Um, I think the, the scene for me that I I kept going back to in my not just in my mind but like in my body was um, you know I'll go into it after we'll go into the plot afterwards but when Leonardo DiCaprio's riding away from the the Indian the re Native Americans. Who are searching for, you know, the daughter, the tribe's daughter, I'm, I'm assuming the chief's daughter. Mm. Um, he's riding on his horse, and it's, you know, a great um, Inaritu tracking shot where it's, you know, just one long take of guys chasing Leonardo DiCaprio, and he's, and he's, and he's shooting at them with his, with his you know, uh, gunpowder-loaded pistol, and, and he doesn't see where he's going, and all of a sudden there's a cliff, and he falls off the cliff, and his horse falls off the cliff into a tree. Um, and I remember, and I, I'll, I'll hold this, the physical sensation of seeing that scene with me forever, of just kind of, I was sitting back in my, my seat, and then as he was going over the cliff, I kind of went over the cliff with him, and like I just kind of pedaled forward. You, and also, like, you also hit me. I don't know if you noticed that. When you did that, you like tapped me on oh, the shoulder. I was so excited. Like I wasn't watching it as well. But weren't you excited? Uh, I don't get really excited when I'm uh, watching movies often. I was so excited. It was like the best thing I've I'm ever seen. Pretty heartless. Um, and it was just, it was just kind of, you know, the best realized scene for me of what was a really exciting movie. So Leonardo DiCaprio uh, plays Hugh Glass. He is a tracker for a fur trading company in um, the 1820s American wilderness. Um, he has a son named Hawk, played by Forrest Goodluck. Um, Hugh, we find out through flashbacks, um, uh, Hawk's mother, Hugh's wife, Hawk's mother, was a um, Pawnee Indian. She's killed in uh, a raid by, you know, an American force. It has that great pile of bones sequence. I love the pile of bones. There's a lot of great kind of surrealist, you know, scenes in this. Um, You know, so he ends up with this this trading company. Um, They get ambushed by the Ree, another tribe of of, uh, Native Americans. Um, And... They get pushed out of their camp uh, without all their pelts. They have to um, glass reasons with um, Dom Hall Gleason's Captain Henry that um, their best bet is to leave their boat that they escaped on. 
leave the pelts and go over the mountain to get back to their fort. Um, this leads to a lot of resentment from John Fitzgerald, played by Tom Hardy, who was just in it for the money, wants the money for his pelts. And the resentment really comes out when Glass gets mauled nearly to death by a bear. In an extremely graphic scene. Right. Which, you know, as we were talking about off-air, the CGI works and doesn't work, you know, from a frame-to-frame basis, which yeah. I think is weird, but it's I mean, there's it's a lot of practical effective. effects yeah. used there for, like, it was, it was a mechanical yeah. there, um, but you definitely but it, see a lot of, well, this is one of the few times where some of the cinematography kind of is jarred to cover up the fact that it's right. mechanical. Um, they have to carry him now. At one point, start, you know, eventually it starts to snow, and they're and they're going up to a mountain pass, and they can't carry him. So, um, Hawk and uh, Jim Bridger, played by Will Poulter and Fitzgerald, decide to stay for some extra pay and wait until um, Glass dies, and then give him a proper burial, and then rejoin the party. Um, Fitzgerald doesn't want to wait. And he, everyone assumes that Glass is going to die from his wounds. Um, so he tries to smother Glass. He gets caught by Glass's son, Hawk. Hawk gets stabbed by Fitzgerald. And then Fitzgerald convinces um, Bridger to leave, leaving Glass for dead. Spoiler alert. He doesn't die. He... You know, heals over time and escapes more Indians and other terrible Often things. Often using gunpowder to heal sure. himself. Um, you know, eventually he gets you know, back to the fort. There's a showdown with Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald gets scalped, and the movie ends with Leonardo DiCaprio staring into the camera. That's one. That's one thing I want to ask you. Do you have any problems with the historical accuracy of the ending? What do you mean? Well, um, just the fact that. You know, in in the actual instance, nobody died. Fitzgerald wasn't scalped by anybody. No, I don't. Um, Andrew Henry didn't wasn't killed. He died like three or four years mm-hmm. later. No, I don't care about that. Okay. I, had, I for as a rule, historical accuracy only um, matters to me when it kind of gets in the way of the gets in the way of the movie. Yeah, it doesn't bug me too much here. I mean, I prefer some historical accuracy. I I don't like extreme examples of. Historical fantasy, like I hate right. Inglorious Bastards, well, because it takes me out of that with so how su- historically inaccurate. I suppose the I mean, argument, it's not even trying to be historically accurate. Yeah, and I suppose the ridiculous. argument we're making here is that um, I find this okay because there's no stakes. You know what I mean? Whereas an Inglorious Bastards, right? Where yeah. Inglorious Bastards, you're kind of talking about you know Hitler getting shot in a movie theater. Obviously, that didn't happen. Yeah, that's pretty significant historical twist there. Um, Leonardo, I mean, uh, Quentin Tarantino was admittedly making a kind of fantastical. Um, oh, obviously, but it still kind either of either that or he had really bad public school. Education. It still kind of took me out of it. You know what I mean? Also, you know, B.J. Novak would not be involved in anything as cool as as what was as the Inglorious Bastards as a rule. But Eli Roth would definitely, definitely. Okay. So, so yeah, it's just a question I had. Um, I, I sometimes get bugged by that. A little bugged. Maybe by some of the depictions of the American versus, like, Canadian fur traders. Like, kind of, they portrayed the Canadian fur traders as more violent in this than they really were. Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes that sort of, like, generalization of characters gets to me. Um, 
but yeah, the overall story. I think some people had a problem with the historical accuracy in terms of like the ending. I mean, I don't um, know. So that's what's what I don't know why. I, I mean, I suppose a good example of this what would be, um, or a good comparison would be the historical inaccuracy of something like Twelve Years a Slave, when you're not dealing with the whole of slavery. Slavery obviously existed before the story of Twelve Years a Slave and existed after the story of Twelve Years a Slave. Um, is the historical accuracy of this one guy really like very significant to um, the overall film or the quality of the film? I don't. Yeah. I don't really think it is. I think no, I, the I message agree. is conveyed either way. Um, I think if anybody's really moved by the film, they're going to search out the story, and well, that's just, better. And, and you're going to look at it from um, from the perspective of a film. You know what I mean? Like, well, I, hopefully, <laughs> I didn't go into it thinking. Um, expecting one thing to happen and getting something else and being like, whoa, now I don't know what to do with myself. I just, I, you know, went in to watch an, an Inaritu movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio freezing to death in, um, you know, an inhumane American climate. Um, and I, and I got it. Um, so the story is really simple. You know what I mean? It's just kind of a, you know, a, a revenge movie and the the movie actually works less for me as soon as glass gets back to the camp yeah um, it's better as it's in its survival moments right when um, he has revenge down inside of him and that's what's compelling him to move forward but it works better for me in that survival moment right and that's kind of one of the reasons that um those that you know last that first seven eighths maybe of the movie um you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, the combination of Inaritu, um, Emmanuel Lubezki, and um, Leonardo DiCaprio, like all working together, kind of selling this survivalist story. Um, it's not... You really feel it. You feel everything that Leonardo DiCaprio is going through. Um, you... It's, it's not so much a kind of... You feel sad for him or you feel bad for him or you're scared for him or anything like that. You're kind of in there with him um, experiencing all of these things. I mean, it's so convincing on every level. Um, and we've had this con- I've had this conversation with many people that want to say, like, this is Tom Hardy's movie. Um, it's 100% not Tom Hardy's movie. If Leonardo DiCaprio stinks in this movie, this movie doesn't work. Yeah. If, some- if whoever is playing Glass in this movie doesn't, doesn't convey the things that DiCaprio was conveying. This movie doesn't make any sense. I mean, I prefer. I mean, I'll talk about this when I do. I prefer Tom Hardy in this, but definitely, it's it is DiCaprio's movie. Yeah, but I'm actually. I when we can argue more about the Tom Hardy thing. I'm not sure that Tom Hardy's performance stands up for me um, as I did like when I first saw it. But that's a different. I think, I think that's a that's we'll a little bit that of a, yeah. That's that's going to be a nice little. Um, it's not a spoiler, but a nice little. Uh, teaser of what's to oh, come. Oh, yeah. yeah. We'll remind people. We should write it down and remind people. Tom said this about <laughs> The Revenant back on whenever they recorded it. Um, the other thing I think that really works in helping this movie convey the visceral sense of loss, and but also um, the kind of insurmountableness of the task at hand is um, the really fantastic score. I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about score this episode. Um, by uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto and Alva Noto. Um, Ryuichi Sakamoto is kind of a famous um, composer. Um, he's written one of my favorite pieces of 
music of all time. It's the theme to um, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, a movie he starred in, actually, with David Bowie in the 80s. Um, and it's just, you know, it's a wonderful piece of, of, I suppose, film score, but just any music at all. Um, and the thing I really love about the score is it doesn't do a lot. It's got a f- couple of themes that it returns to now and again. Um, but the way that the score kind of amplifies what's happening on screen and also like the the natural sound design of the film where um, sometimes the score and the sound design kind of bleed into each other in that this you know the score would it almost seems like it's mimicking what's happening um, around glass at any given moment or around one of the characters um, and amplify and, and it amplifies the sound it makes it makes the 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 space seemed that much more daunting and that much more, um, you know, compelling and that much more intimidating. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, when he is, you know, climbing up the, he's climbing up the hill to see the, you know, he's escaped from the re down the river. Um, you know, he falls asleep on, on the banks there. He's got a little fire going next to him and he kind of hears the sound of the buffalo. The score kind of builds and builds and builds as he's hobbling up this hill but at some point the sounds of the uh, the sound of the buffalo and the wind overwhelms it but the score doesn't go away like the score the score stays um and it just it magnifies it it makes it something more than just kind of um an evocation of emotion you know what i mean because we can't we're not seeing glass's face you know right then we're just seeing the buffalo and I think a normal movie you'd have like the score maybe like a dance with wolves things where you'd have the score really kick up over the natural sounds so you'd understand what what glass must be feeling or we would know how to feel about the scene we're seeing um but it mingles it 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 intertwines with it and it makes it something else I, I think I agree with that in the sense that there's some moments in the score, especially like when he's going down the river, um, or, or some of those like really heavy winter shots where you feel cold. Yeah. You feel it, it really gets into, does get into your bones. Like a combination of Lubetsky's cinematography, you know, that performance by DiCaprio and that score just, I think more so than a lot of films really puts you into the experience. Mm. It works almost like that, that combination of uh, that mix of the three, that synergy works almost as like a nature documentary at times. Yeah. Like it has that, that feeling where you very much feel there. Mm-hmm. And I do think that's like, I, that's something we're going to talk about when we get down the road, but I do agree with you there. It just emotes into you. It, it, it forces you to kind of like, cause this movie does not work if you're not there beside him. I agree with you. With it's, you. it's, it's all kind of, it's all got to work together. Yeah. If you are watching this film, it's, it's good. But if, if you're, you know, it's it's still a good, well produced movie, but this movie does a lot to, to get you beside it. Yes, him. and that's a perfect segue into Gold Star. That's a perfect segue into like the other a perfect you know, segue into the Gold Star. <laughs> Excellent. Um, into one of the other scenes that like I just I just I find really um, just kind of awe inspiring. And um, after Glass kind of he crawls out of his hole and he and he crawls over to Hawk. Um, you know, and Hawk's been dead for, uh, you know, several hours and he's, it's cold. So he's frozen. Um, and there's, you know, that's when you get some kind of sentimental, a little bit of sentimental score, you know what I mean? That kind of like pulsing, like type of thing. Mm-hmm. And glasses his head on his chest and he, um, he lets out a breath 
And at the moment the breath kind of plumes out, the score stops, and it cuts to a cloud shot. Um, you know, a drone shot, I'm assuming. Um, at sunset, you know, a cloud kind of merges with that, with that plume of breath, and there's no sound anymore. It's just like the sound of the wind at a certain level. Um, and I think that's the other thing that this movie does really well and a way that the score plays a part in that um, they never let the score... And, that, you know, we can chalk this up to the direction or we can chalk it up to the sound design. Um, they never let the score linger longer than it than it has to. The movie always gives back to the sounds of nature. Um, it always gives back to the sounds of... Um, you know, people breathing, people walking, you know, the sound of the river, the sound of a fire. Um, it's it's an unbelievable synergy that they've, like you said, it's an unbelievable synergy that they've created. Um, but that score, so when, when the score leaves, it's a noticeable absence. You know what I mean? When it cuts off, you're like, you can, it, you can hear it kind of ringing in your head, and it elevates the images even further in its, in its absence. Um, but then there's the, the scene where, you know, Glass has met that Pawnee Indian, and they share the organs of the buffalo um, that, the wolves, that the wolves have left. And they kind of they meet up together, and he tells Glass that his, that his body is rotten, and he needs to heal, but that storm is coming, so he builds that enclosure for Glass. Um, and as he's building that enclosure, right before that, there's this kind of like percussive, like maybe like a string, maybe a synth. Um, but as the storm rages in, um, you know, the sound of the trees, they look like birch trees around them, um, just kind of twisting in the wind and the snow coming in and him hacking at the trees with the axe um, and him trying, you know, trying to start a fire and get this thing set up. The, the score is there. It's underneath all of those things, really helping to create not just a synergy between like the images and the sound, but a synergy between um, the Pawnee and Glass, I feel, where um, they're both desperate in a way. It, it has this really heightened natural desperation. So it's not like an action movie thing where like the the where the... The, the natural sounds totally kick out and you just have this, you know, kind of very heavy-handed, you know, desperation score, like, oh, got to get this done, a montage of an Indian chopping things up. Um, it's deeper than that. Like, everything in this movie is deeper than, I think, it appears on screen. Um, I won't get into any of the metaphors that I think are at play here or some of the symbolism. We'll save that for our really deep dive into The Revenant for later. Um, but the score, I think, is a key component in helping to do all of that stuff. And that's a really... it's it's um, If I had to rank a list of like top ten film scores, it might be like you know nine or ten. It's like a, a really significant film that's score. For, that's where we become pivotal. Yes. <laughs> um I don't... Do you want to add anything else? I know I know we're going to do a deep dive on this Yeah, know, it's, it's something that's... It's, deeply affected me when I saw it and I was surprised you know going into it like I really thought you know it was, it was kind of like your movie you were the one I was really excited for it I was not oh I was really at all I'm up, not yeah. an Arnutu guy I think for the most part I've disliked almost everything he had did to that point even Birdman I don't like Birdman Babel was Babel's terrible garbage um, 
21 grams is all right. Um, I didn't like that one. It, I mean, it was all right. It was better than Babel. Yeah. I really hate Babel. Well, like, Babel. I despise Babel. So, so going into it, I wasn't expecting anything mm-hmm. because Babel is awful. Um, just to reaffirm how bad Babel is. It was con- it's confusingly bad. It's got that Gustavo Santiano like, score. No, that score is fantastic. Well, me and you will always disagree Why don't you him. like him? I don't. It's just, it's too simplistic. I, I like oh, more complexity fantastic. and layers. I'm a synth guy, so I like layering 30 tracks onto like one score. Um, but I, th- I was surprised that both of us left, left loving it. I think, mm-hmm. you know, it was one both of our near top films of the year. Mm-hmm. Um and that's always surprising to me, just that, that you know, I, that says a lot. And, you know, I'll speak more about it later, but yeah. that I went into it expecting nothing and left it, you know, just with it being in you know, my top 80 films of, yeah. of all time. Um, top 80 pivotal films of all time. I would say top eight. Actually, that's probably in my top 80. Like, if we're doing a favorite list, that would definitely be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't have too much to add right now i have a lot to add but i'm gonna yeah we'll save, save it, it. We'll, we'll and i've got a page of notes i feel here like this is gonna be a good long discussion uh in a couple months when we'll we have get a, back to it we'll have a bonus episode regular episode <laughs> um but yeah so uh i guess we'll be right back with mario's 86 welcome back my number 86 is the 2016 bank robbery caper western drama the second of that western taylor sheridan trilogy and my highest ranked taylor sheridan film uh hell or high water it tells the tale of the howard brothers played by chris pine the the dreamy chris pine he Mm. really is that's a that's a aggressively attractive man (laughs) like Um, like i like him and dan stevens like i'm like hmm I think those are like my two, my and Idris Elba. Like those are my three. Where I'm like, hmm. <laughs> yeah, Le- leaving this in, by the way. Um, okay, I'll leave it in. I don't care. And Ben Foster, who's attractive in his own way, not as attractive. Mm. But, yeah, I'll give him a give. You're a good-looking guy, Ben Foster, but like you know, you're a B plus player. <laughs> um, anyways, it tells the tale of the Howard brothers who are trying to save their mother's ranch. It's being foreclosed on by the Texas Midlands Bank, mm-hmm. and they need to come up. With tens of thousands of dollars, I think it's like the around thirty thousand. Forty three or so. Forty three. It's like some odd number. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, and they are doing that by robbing various branches of the Texas Midland Bank. They're pursued by two lawmen, Jeff Bridges. I think in this best of his trilogy of gruff lawmen, uh, you know, you are not even lawmen, just gruff Western mm-hmm. people, as you saw in uh, Crazy Heart, which he won the Oscar for, and um, True Grit. And also Gil Birmingham. Um, the reason this movie shows up on my list is just like horror films were a big part of my childhood and action films. My dad was always a big Western fan. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, the Westerns had kind of like faded uh, for me. There hadn't been a really good, solid Western. I had intellectual appreciations for Westerns. You didn't like um, Open Range? Oh god! <laughs> but I, intele- I had like intellectual appreciations for westerns. Um, Three Ten to Yuma was a good one. That's a good flick. Um, what was that one that that Nick Cave did? Oh, the uh, proposition. The proposition is another good, a good one. one. But it didn't get to me. They mm. didn't have this like gut reaction. You know, there was something distant from that. And actually, I would say even another the previous Taylor Sheridan movie, Sicario, which I 
think is a better film mm-hmm. in terms of how it's put together. Um, I have more of an intellectual appreciation for that, and I would, I would openly say that's a better film. Yeah, it doesn't um, have some. It doesn't have like the western feel, like no, the messiness of a it's western. It's so technically, yeah, it's so yeah, technically proficient. It's clean. Yep. And Villeneuve is just a very clean director, um, and everyone in that production just knew knew what the what the fuck they were doing. And yeah. I think this is dirtier. Mm-hmm. And so I saw this just on the offhand. It was um, a lot of times uh, during a weekend. I'll be really bored and sitting outside P and M coffee shop and sandwich shop eating a. <laughs> eating an egg and cheese sandwich, drinking my third or fourth coffee. And I'll be like, fuck it, I want to see a movie. And our Criterion Cinema downtown has has a good selection sometimes do of, all right, yeah. of independent films. Um, I, I saw Columbus this way, which we'll talk about sometime in a bonus episode because we keep bringing it up. Yeah, we'll talk about Columbus. And I saw Hell or High Water. I had not heard of it, hadn't seen a single trailer for it, and I was mm-hmm. like, mm, I wanted to see a good violent movie. Um, I hadn't seen a good... R-rated action film. Uh, saw that it had like a 99% of Ron Tomatoes. Saw mm. the cast. Didn't look up anything about it. Didn't look up the trailer. And I just went to go to see it. And it just hit me in all the right ways. And mm. it actually ended up being my, my top film of 2016. Um, it was nominated for four Oscars. Lost all of them. Three of them I agree with. Um, lost Best Picture to Moonlight. Uh, Best Supporting Actor to uh, Ali for Moonlight mm-hmm. as well, and um, screenplay by Taylor Sheridan lost to Kenneth Loggerin's screenplay for Manchester by Sea, which it's is fine. just fucking perfection. Yeah. That, that's one of the best screenplays i say in the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and also lost editing to fucking Hacksaw Ridge, which is a travesty. Um, yeah, I don't 100% understand that. People need to justify their love of Hacksaw I mean, Ridge. I could... I would argue too that it makes less sense because this made a lot of this made a pretty good amount of money. Yeah, it made around thirty five, thirty eight million dollars worldwide, uh, but off of like a twelve million dollar budget. It was right. it was not it was basically a movie that came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, it came out like in August, mm-hmm. and it was not in the conversation at all. I think people were talking about it as um, just for best supporting actor, saying like, oh, you know, Jeff Bridges might sneak in there, and then ends up getting nominated for four Oscars, including picture. And I think that's what it gets to me is like, it's not a perfect movie. But no, it, it gets under, like, got under my skin. It, it made me not so much live it like the Revenant does for for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it just stayed there. And I think actually the big, a huge part of that is uh, Jake Roberts editing mm-hmm. mixed with that Taylor Sheridan screenplay. Taylor Sheridan's probably one of my, I know, I know you're not the biggest fan of him. I've liked all three. I love two of his movies. Yeah. Wind River's pretty good. Um, but just that that synergy between the two. And the fact that this movie has... Uh, the relationship between Ben Foster and Chris Pine feels very natural. You don't really expect that. Because, you know, Chris Pine has a lot of charisma. I like him as Captain Kirk. Um, and I've liked him in some of his other roles, some of his like, romantic lead roles. But he's never been... He, there's never been... A thought in me that him and Ben Foster would work together, especially Ben Foster playing his kind of prototypical man who's unhinged and crazy, playing that like three ten to Yuma character again. But they work so well, so you believe that they're brothers. Yeah, and there's this, just this great rising action to it. It's very subtle in the beginning. There's some moments of violence. Um, you know, there's some moments of, of kind of quiet action, mm-hmm. such as when uh, Ben Foster kind of just abruptly robs that bank. But then that moment where 
they they have that shootout in the bank where everything kind of goes wrong. Yeah. Um, they, they kill several of the people there. That's where it gets really graphically sort of violent, mm-hmm. um, leading to that great shootout sequence. Um, it just it, it hit me in a lot of ways. Yeah. This movie just, it felt like that rising, great example of just this rising tension. I think a lot of Westerns for me have always spoke well to me when either they start out big and stay big or they start out quiet. They allow you to get to know your, your heroes and your villains, not even your heroes or your villains, your protagonists, your antagonists, and then build, build, explode, and settle back down into that yeah. quietness. And I really love that quiet finish of you know the, the tease of the standoff. These two men yeah. know they're going to have to like settle the score. Um, and then it kind of ends there. Mm-hmm. And it just, it's just such a classic example of a Western for me. And it, and it made me dive right back into that genre. And yeah. that, that's, that's a big reason. That's my, my reason it's on this. I think it's a, it's a I think it's a really good example of you know like a neo western like they did, oh yeah I think Taylor Sheridan did a really good job of it's called a neo western in by so, Wikipedia it's me and Wikipedia are like this crossing my fingers edited by Thomas Nolan <laughs> um, yeah I think he does a really good job of kind of inserting um, new world ideas into um, a kind of old world skin. Yeah, and I think I think David McKenzie is is a kind of flawed director. So there's a lot of those moments where they do like those long shots of just like showing the foreclosures, and it's like, yeah, we get it. I don't think that's necessary. Yeah, but I think that's where like that, that kind of like grittiness and that imperfection works. Well, I would argue. So I actually think those, <clears throat> I think those kind of those like him just hammering on the idea of like foreclosure or like quick cash or you know whatever. Um, Work in the sense that it kind of really establishes before um, Gil Birmingham's Alberto kind of has that speech um, when they're sitting in front of the coffee shop. Oh, that's a that's a great uh, speech. That's a great speech about kind of how long time ago your ancestors was the Indians. So someone came along and killed them, and broke them down, made you into one of them. Hundred and fifty years ago. All this was my ancestors' land. Everything you could see, everything you saw yesterday, to the grandparents of these folks took it. And now it's been taken from them. Except it ain't no army doing it. It's those sons of bitches right there. You you don't see a lot of that after that speech. Like that speech is kind of like the cutoff point for kind of like seeing that stuff. But he almost he really seems to want you to understand like this is a really big this is a really big problem. And I credit Taylor Sheridan's script um, for being more about the thing that we love to talk about in on this show, um, like class. Yeah, more so than like a revenge picture. Like he's not like I guess he's mad at Texas Midland Bank. But he's also just they're mad looking at for the like situation, just, and they're looking for some sort of justice in this world. Yeah, and I think actually that that Native American, like that, that speech about Native Americans, like that speech about Berto and and Gil Birdman's great in this. Those, he's those that, that yeah, relationship yeah. is is like this movie has really great relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, that those two partnerships just feel so natural. Um, but and I think he he does this. You know, he hammers this really home in Wind River. Um, you know, and coming from the West Coast, you just see how little 
rethink of the Native Americans and mm-hmm. how little we kind of like push them to the side. Mm-hmm. And so that speech really resonated with me. You know, having seen that face forward, it, it doesn't feel so hammered home in the sense of someone intellectually understanding the issues, um, you know, understanding the, the problems facing Native Americans. But this felt like somebody who, and it was reaffirmed by Wind River, somebody truly understanding where, where they're coming from. Well, I think he's a really interesting character um, from the perspective that, you know, um, the script made him Christian. And so they're having that conversation in the hotel room where he's watching that evangelist speak. And um, Jeff Daniels is like teasing him for being a Christian. Um, Jeff Bridges. Jeff <laughs> This movie like, would be so much it. better if Jeff Daniels is in it. Um, either would have worked either way. Oh, yeah, I think so. Um, Jeff, Jeff Daniels like was his, a good like handlebar like mustache. newsroom character. Sure. Um, it, you know, when he's teasing him about, about you know, being a Christian, kind of talking to him like, oh, don't you do, you know, X, Y, and Z Native American, like, you know, horribly stereotypical Native American custom. Um, and it kind of exemplifies this thing this idea that like we've all had to make choices and like the native American community has kind of made this choice to adopt a lot of Christian values because it was either this or like they killed you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or, you know, like if you didn't, they would, they, they let you do it on your small little parcel of land that they never kept up, but they always watched you and they always judged you and they told you you had to get back home. And it kind of, and he, those, that idea relates to the idea that, um, you know, um, Chris Pine and Ben Foster talk about in regard, or that that lawyer talks about um, in regard to like the the reverse mortgage that Texas Midland kind of, you know, forced the, um, the mother into mm-hmm. into taking, which they now have to now they now have to pay back. Um, there, you're offered these kind of choiceless choices, like you have no choice but to make this choice, or you know, it's the end of you know, whatever. It's the end of your civilization. It's the end of your ability to take care of yourself. Um, and to that end, there's no real, like the villain in the movie is the bank until the very end of the movie, you know, when Ben Foster kills a bunch of people, um, which I thought was like when I first saw it, I watched it only because you were like, oh, I love this movie. And I watched it and I was like, for the first like three quarters of it, I was like, yeah, I get it. This is pretty good. Like Ben Foster is being weird. His acting is very strange and is kind of like pissing me off. But you know, I the message, the message was was related in the script so perfectly that I was I was one hundred percent on board mm-hmm. with what they were doing. Um, but then Ben Foster's weirdness kind of gets in for me gets in the way of the movie being satisfying at the end because. He's so odd through the whole movie um, that where I think this movie should be about one thing, it just becomes about Ben Foster and Ben Foster, the inevitability of of Tanner Howard blowing a bunch of people away, which I didn't I didn't actually think was going to happen. But then even Jeff Bridges kind of says at the end, like, oh, he would have done it anyway because, you know, he wanted to kill people. It's like, but did he really want to kill people? The only person he killed was his dad. Yeah, and it's and it's hinted at slightly, but I I do agree with you that it's that messiness that I appreciated in the western, mm. um, in the fact that there is like a plot contrivance you need to get to, you need to get you need to get to this moment at the end, you need to get to something, um, 
and like Marcus, like that, that Marcus Hamilton character, that Jeff Bridges character is just so irredeemable throughout most of the movie. He's, you know, dedicated to the law, dedicated to his ideas of the law, but he's a piece of like garbage throughout that, you know, throughout the film. This is old school. Yeah, exactly. But, but it, but presented in that kind of neo-Western way, it's, it's still irredeemable sort of characteristics. Mm -hmm. And, I think Ben Foster's kind of like that Tanner explosion at the end that that's kind of like messily hinted at is just used for his reaction to Alberto being shot in the head, which is fantastic, which is just like, oh, that's I his Oscar that. moment. Like that's, that's the moment he should like, I mean, I, I personally thought he should have won the Oscar that year. I'm okay. If you know, Ali winning, um, I'm not saying his first name. Cause I can Mahershala. Never, Mahershala Ali, uh, Winning it because that was a good performance, but it's a, I'm not ever really a fan of small performances winning. Well, we, yeah, um, I mean, it's a, that's a Leonardo DiCaprio esque performance in the sense that, like, like a Revenant performance, where in that if that role doesn't work, then the whole movie works. doesn't work. Yeah, right. no, exactly. Um, and I think it's just that that turn is there for that to redeem him. His that moment where his like his voice catches, he goes, oh. uh, like, like. He, that and front drops. And he's wearing sunglasses. Yeah. You don't even get to see his eyes, really. Yeah, you can just see, like, the scrunch of his cheeks. Which is amazing. And and, and he drops that, that Western draw, like, that Westernness that, yep. you know, and he just becomes this broken person. And, yeah, it's messy. I'm not a fan of, like, that entire shootout. I would have preferred almost, like, you know, the shooting in the bank and then maybe as they're escaping, Tanner kills kills Alberto. And I, but I think... I'm okay with it because it leads to that like classical Western ending of right. hinted at standoff. Well, that's I mean I think my problem with it is not so much I not so much with anything that actually happens. My performance is that I mean my problem is that Ben Foster's your performance is magnificent. Yeah, my performance is oh, fuck. <laughs> my problem is that Ben Foster's performance kind of telegraphs something like this happening. Where so instead of this movie kind of rolling along with this quiet boil underneath it, where you know that like they're robbing banks with guns, yeah, you know what I mean. They're, they're anything technically bashing the gun into the people's face. You're you just know? waiting for something bad to happen. You know what I mean? Um, or if there was, a, according to the script, they're robbing banks with guns. Um, you know, Tanner is kind of trucking along these two bigger guns kind of for no reason. He says he uses them to shoot coyotes or, you know, whatever. Um, so you're just kind of waiting there the whole time for something to happen. But because Ben Foster plays with, with such weird, like, manic southern energy, that slow, that kind of boiling, that kind of, like, you know, um, societal, like, percolation of anger kind of, like, pops up every once in a while. Um, like when he, you know, he kind of forces the hooker off of him. Even when he's like smooth talking the hotel desk clerk. Um, you know, there's all these moments where he kind of just like, yeah. and just like, and it kind of takes you away from the ending. It's gonna happen. The ending's not, sh the ending, the ending should be sad and shocking simultaneously. But then, but for me, when I watched it, I was just kind of like, Okay, you know. But see, this is this is why I like shoot someone in the head. This is why I like about it is is the fact that it is reminiscent of like that you know that spaghetti western like Sergio Leone like the John Fords the John Sturgises like where they 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 were messy with it you know. Um, and sometimes it's nice to have a clean director do it like I, one of my favorite westerns we'll talk about later by Sam Peckinpah mm -hmm. you know. Um, but like they they were messy directors they weren't really extremely proficient directors and I think David McKenzie's not. 
the most proficient director. He's not even really secure of, sure of himself. I mean, Outlaw King, no. that's coming out soon. He got bad reviews for it and immediately cut like 30 minutes of it to like go like, oh, I hope it's good now. Um, so so it's a director who, who isn't, I don't think, so sure of his craft. He's not a bad director. No. But it's, 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 there's a sloppiness to it. And that worked for me in the sense that it just reminded me of all those westerns yeah, I, I watched it. as a kid that, yeah. that you know a few dollars more a fistful of dollars you know uh high plains drifter like like we're just sergio leone or like even early clint eastwood you could argue clint eastwood. Didn't, didn't know exactly what they're gonna do and they needed to get an emotion across but they didn't know how to subtly do it they didn't know how to do it like inerto did mm-hmm. with revenant um and so they just kind of like fucking threw flung at you because like uh, shows of masculinity or oh shows of drama. Yeah, and like, that was yeah. It doesn't work has a technical soundness, but it it it's like that smell of chocolate chip cookies that reminds you of you know Christmas morning sort of thing. And I suppose that's the difference between or Christmas Eve. Why would you be eating chocolate chip cookies on Christmas morning? I eat chocolate chip cookies on Christmas morning. Because like, you, you gotta eat bake. What, would you fresh bake them though? You gotta eat what's left of the Santa's cookies. Oh, man, I'm so excited for Christmas season though. Like, chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> um. Instead of beer, we'll drink chocolate chip cookies. I might make chocolate chip we'll cookies. We'll blend it. We'll blend I'm it with some I'm going to make chocolate milk. chip cookies when we get into the holiday season. Nice. And we start drinking porters and stuff. Oh, Jesus Christ. We're both going to gain like 25 pounds. <laughs> um, yeah, there's... Um, I think that's a difference. Like, I didn't grow up with Westerns as a thing. I came to Westerns, like, much later. So, like, I remember the... I think the earliest Western I saw was Tombstone when I was, like, 12 or 13 or something like that. Maybe even fourteen. That's, well, that's also one of the earliest ones, but you no, know, you, yeah. I was, I, but I think I was like six or seven when I saw but, that. Oh, really? Okay, so we're, you know, that's the difference, thing, <laughs> difference thing, in our raisings. No criticism yeah. to, to anyone. Just, but just to think that that man's son would go on to direct Mandy. Oh, is that true? Yeah, George Cosmatos. Uh, oh, like the yeah. Tombstone. He actually used the money. I read that. That's right. Yeah, because Panos Cosmatos used the money, uh, like some of the royalties or whatnot, from Tombstone, or like some of the salary from Tombstone. To film Beyond the Black Rainbow. Trivia, uh, motherfuckers. I mean, Tombstone was a movie that almost Throw made that on IMDb. Tombstone was a movie that almost made my list. Oh, Tombstone. But that would yeah, have been... Tombstone but, was close to me but as well. But it would have been solely for Val Kilmer. It would have been Val Kilmer and then me and my cousins just kind of um, quoting Val Kilmer lines to each other. For like years and years and years, oh, well, we would just even, randomly say to each other, "Like I got two guns." That one movie for each of you. single-handedly made me still follow the career of Stephen Lang. There you go, Bat and Manhunter. So, I like Stephen Lang in that. Does its job. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, the thing that I think bugs me about this movie more than anything is the um, the Nick Cave score. Yeah, it's not his best. It's not my. It's his best. There's a couple of really great themes that he kind of returns to over and over again, like that piano theme, like the dun, 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 dun. Um, and it kind of, it puts me in like a mournful mood and I feel like it should be more mournful, but David McKenzie seems to lean really heavily on like, um, like fairly stereotypical neo-Western, like um, violin work by Warren Ellis. And then also pop music. Like there seems to be way too much pop music yeah. in this movie. Um, just like I, cause well, it's kind of like Sergio Leone leaning on Inouye Morricone. I mean, Inouye Morricone being Morricone. Yeah. But, you know, I'm just saying, it's like this unsuredness was, was worked for me. But I think, so, I mean, I would go to the scene where, um, you know, it's kind of a montage of kind of a bunch of people kind of in a bunch of different situations. Um, like As a montage. Kind of, do. right. <laughs> but kind of typified by the... Um, 
the uh, Howard brothers kind of like wrestling in the front yard. There's a pop music song playing. Yeah, like, you have all this. Silly. You have all this great score stuff that can convey a kind of like that can convey a sadness for you. You don't need like a sad. I mean, I love the song, uh, you know, by Gillian Welsh, like a sad Gillian Welsh country ballad, like playing behind it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? You don't, you just don't need it. Like you got this, you paid, I'm sure you paid Nick Cave and Warren Ellis a fairly sizable amount of money to score this movie for you. I am sure. Like, so just fucking use it. You, I mean, just, just lean on it because it's doing, it's doing all that work. Well, that's interesting. And I think like, I do think if I had, you know, come to this movie without that history, those things would bother me. I think Ben Foster's performance would really bother me. You know? It's just weird. And I love Ben Foster. Oh, I love Ben Foster, yeah. He should be in the conversation this year for acting. I've been on, I've been on the Ben Foster... I was thinking about this today. I've been on the Ben Foster train since Get Over It. I mean... That's he, the Kirsten Dunst and Cisco movie that he made. <laughs> not, not Salute Your Shorts? No. No. I never actually watched that. Was it Salute Your Shorts? Was, he on that, was it that one? I'm pretty sure it was. It was one of those... Yeah, he wasn't movie. on Hey Dude... No, yeah, I think it was. I'm pretty sure it was. Luke and he wasn't on Are You Afraid of the Dark, so it was Hadjibus. I think he might have been on an episode of Are You Afraid. I of think the Dark? everyone was on an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark, but Ryan Gosling was on. No, the Goosebumps. Goosebumps, yeah, terrible episode. Which one he did he do? I don't remember, but it was a terrible episode. I watched it recently, like was it a Monst- couple years ago? Was it Monster Blood? No, I think. Was it that <sighs> Dump Night of the Living Dummy? No, that was a good, I love those ones. Yeah, those are good. Can, can I just put goosebumps on my list? <laughs> um, Number eighty-five goosebumps. But it, yeah, but if I didn't, you know, if I didn't have that, like those things would get to me. Mm-hmm. But instead, they just felt like a blanket. Right, you've and, got this kind of archetype kind of built into your head, and it this like, like you said, it just kind of satisfied. And, that. Yeah, and it's it's that mixed with like the anchoring of of a, I think a really solid screenplay, um, fantastic editing, editing that I think should have won that year. Um, I think this film doesn't work at all if it's not edited yeah. the way it is. The I think fact you're right. that I, I think you know Taylor Sheridan, I mean, he's a solid, really solid screenwriter, but um, having you know kind of like David McKenzie work with it, I don't think might have made it linger too much, mm. and and it, that gives it its tightness. Um, you know, not yeah. You know, so those elements, you know, Jeff Bridges, the the, the relationships between those actors. Um, I almost said Jeff Daniels. Got that in my I'm sorry, head. I did it. Yeah, that's me. Um, like that just, you know, overwhelmed it for me. Yeah, and that made me, you know, having that background and having this technical soundness just kind of like made me lean back into those films. And I like went home and watched uh, Wild Bunch. Like, there you go. Next night, you know, which is a technically sound western, not a well, yeah, technically western western. We we'll talk a little maybe more. No, not even a maybe. It's, <laughs> but it's going to be about a year and a half, so. It's fine. Settle in. But yeah, so that's why it's uh, my number 86. All right, so I think that's it for this week. Yeah. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Instagram.com slash Pivotal Film, which we update once every couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe in time we'll take a photo of us at East Rock Brewing sometime. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> getting kicked out. Getting 86 <laughs> Oh, awesome. Also follow us at twitter.com slash film pivotal. Not pivotal film. If you go to pivotal film, it'll take you nowhere. There is no pivotal film. Twitter. Which is weird that we couldn't get it. Twitter. No. I mean, I'm sure there's a way we could change it, but no, we're not, not change it, it when it's it awesome. It is. Uh, you can email us at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Have we gotten an email yet? 
Nope. <laughs> we have people. People are afraid of emailing us. Um, we got a couple of Twitter comments, but that's about yeah. it. Yeah, uh, you can go or DMs. To I should say people have slipped into film. our DMs. What's DM? Direct oh, direct message. message. Yeah. yeah, I should know that. I'm sorry. You don't have to know. You don't you do can, Twitter. I'm the social media guy. Right, that's true. But I listen to enough people talk about Twitter that I should know what it is. Um, you should go to pivotalfilm.com. You can see a list of the movies on our list. You can see a list of the beers we drank. There's and links think, to our. I think our, as we uh, come to the to end subscribe. of the year, maybe we'll start writing essays about like the films of this year. Um, oh, yeah, I wish I had time to write some essays. I've got like a list of ideas that I want to like, tackle. Right. But I'll start. I'll start working on that. Yeah. In, like in the next couple weeks um so you can see that um you know until then go see a movie drink a beer and we'll talk to you next week no. oh. talk to you next week we'll talk to you next week we, <laughs> we actually drank only one beer throughout i'm not even done yeah. yeah me neither i have like a little bit um and but yeah <laughs> don't worry about it um until then uh see a movie drink a beer and we'll talk to you next week we'll see you next week <laughs>